0: Hello and welcome to Meet the Producer. This is the new podcast series from the Production Guild of Great Britain, in which we get a unique insight into the careers and work of some inspirational producers. I'm Jason Solomons, film critic and presenter on TV and radio and in newspapers, now embarking on a new career as a film producer. So, what better way, I thought, to start out than by asking some of the best in the business for advice? How do you start? Where does the money come from? How do you make deals for stars and attached directors? And what does a producer do all day? I'll ask a diverse collection of guests to understand how some of our favourite films and TV shows have come together and we'll all find out more as I meet the producer. My first guest on the series is award-winning TV maestro Jed Mercurio, a creator who, in over 20 years as a producer, writer and director, has developed his own brand of cliffhanging entertainment drama that's kept British and international viewers hooked to shows including Cardiac Arrest, Bodies, Bodyguard and, of course, Line of Duty. A former hospital doctor and an Air Force officer Jed's now one of the biggest names in world television and now runs, with Hattrick Productions, his own production company, HTM Television, making even more hit shows, including Trigger Point, Bloodlands and the BAFTA-nominated Steven. And, if not exactly making him the subject of one of his own famous interrogation scenes, it's from where I at least got to meet the producer.
1: Yeah, I'm in the office. I'm uh, at
0: the Hattrick offices in Camden. And that's so. You work for them, or you you produce with them? How does it work that relationship?
1: So my my production company is part of the Hattrick Group. So Htm Television is co owned with with Hat Trick. So this this is the the company office. So we have access to all the Hat Trick infrastructure, which is great because they're one of the the biggest indies around, and very yeah. successful. When, when so. did you
0: when did you sort of become part of their their sort of structure?
1: Well, actually, the the company was conceived as being part of the structure because Jimmy Mulville, who's the managing director of Hattrick, and I have known each other ever since I did Bodies, which was for Hattrick. So that's going back about 15 years. And we were just talking about, you know, the the drama landscape um, developing a drama slate. And I was saying I was beginning to feel that I wanted to be involved in projects that I wasn't necessarily writing. Uh, that I was working with other writers and developing new talent and finding new voices. so um, it kind of came out of that. so we found a structure that worked, which was uh, that that hatrick would um, umbrella uh, this this new this new joint venture between me and and Jimmy and Hatrick.
0: And is, was that, would, has that been a help? If you would sort of said, "Oh, thanks, Hatrick for doing bodies, and we had a great time," but you'd gone off and set up your own independent Mercurio Productions, would you have sort of lacked that certain expertise and structure? And ha- how helpful has it been, sort of being a, being part of a, of a of a wider production company?
1: Oh, it's hugely helpful. I, I think one of the, the most daunting things for for indie startups indie startups is the the legal slash business affairs side mm. of things, because often the people who start Indies have good editorial instincts that the, they, they have good creative experience but what they haven't been doing are other things that, that they had other people do when they were part of broadcasters or part, part of big indies and um, the contractual side of things the, the office admin side of things so the fact that there's an existing infrastructure of, of LBA support at Hattrick meant that HTM could just plug straight into that. So the creative and editorial leadership of HTM comes from the creative team, mm. but we benefit hugely from the um, the, the business strengths of, of Hattrick.
0: So you were quite quick to kind of go, thanks very much. Yes, please help me. Because, I, you know, I, I've obviously can write a, a, a series and I've got a load of ideas for a load of other stuff. But in terms of how you get a production company going, you, you didn't really know what you, you were doing. It's also the fact
1: that I didn't want to do it. Right. Because you had again, other things to you, do, yeah. Yeah, again, I think if you look at indie startups, a lot of the time the, the, the key creatives want to be spared having that interfering with their workload and and so that they've got as much bandwidth as possible for the editorial side of of independent production. Mm. So when I originally thought that I might be attracted to the idea of setting up an indie, I talked to some indies, some existing indies that were much larger uh, and just floated the idea of how it might work for me to to benefit from, from their experience and their existing setups.
0: And they all sort of said, "Look, team up with someone who's got that infrastructure; otherwise, you will get, you know, bogged down in, in No, I,
1: no, I think it, uh, more in the sense that I was proposing to them oh, yeah. the arrangement that I've got here at Hattrick. So it was a case of of putting that forward and floating that idea as a proposal and um, gauging the response and the 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 uh, the, the most appropriate response for the needs of the company came from Hatro.
0: what when did you realize that you that there was more to tv life more to your life than than writing i mean i know you you'd been a doctor as well a, a medic so you'd done that and you'd been in the, you know you'd been, been in the services as well so there's a lot of realizations along your personal path jed but obviously when you made bodies and it was a hit thing you what made you think i think i could do producing as well rather than sticking to writing or going to just directing? Well, that
1: actually happened when I did Bodies, which was um, going back to about 2004, 2005, because my my first step beyond writing was to direct. I was always much more interested in in directing as the next step for me. And so when Bodies was conceived originally as as a, a two or three parter, I was going to direct it but then when the commission expanded to a bigger series and a a returnable series it was actually gareth neem at at the bbc who was our executive um who suggested that i move over to a producing role so that i could have a, um, a kind of overview of the series and not be bogged down in directing a few episodes um and then other people would be taking editorial responsibility for the other episodes, so that that was where the idea first came mm-hmm. from. And did, then... did you
0: know what he meant when he said producing? What did you? Because when I thought I, that, I, mean, I didn't mean really what it was.
1: I'd been on set a lot, you know, where the, from the the first series I, I did. I was the medical advisor on set, so. I really understood how a set worked. And I understood the roles of directors and producers and and heads of department. So that was a huge advantage. And obviously then when you start directing, which I'd done on the Gremlins, you're really plugged into the, the, the production hierarchy then. So I kind of knew from the viewpoint of a writer slash director, what I wanted from a producer. So I kind of fulfilled that role. Um, on bodies and it's also just about gaining experience you know you you try and improve your your skills you try and increase your experience and eventually if if you if you do that and you're a, a, a writer like me who creates his own series then you become a showrunner and and that was something that really by the end of bodies um i i felt equipped to do
0: and now you are? Would you call yourself a showrunner for Line of yeah. Duty, for example? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'd say I like I'm a true showrunner in in the sense that I'm I am a, a producer. I'm I'm part of all the production discussions as as well as being. The writer. I, I think that the word showrunner in the UK has become quite an ambiguous term, which is ironic because it was introduced in the US to remove ambiguity <laughs> and and define who the creative leader of a project was. Over here, people are called showrunners who are lead writers who have no real involvement in production decisions. So obviously, they they may go on and, and become more involved in production. But I've Ever since Bodies, I've been very involved in the production side of the projects that I've been part of.
0: So that's including casting and including, you know, the the, the guests. You know, casting your 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 guest baddie in each in each series of of. Of course,
1: series. yeah. I mean, cast, casting is is an important aspect of any production, but also that then comes from the the editorial vision. You know, casting people who who suit the show who'll work well with your existing cast if you're a returning show people you can get on the budget you've got things like that
0: what's your what's your setup uh with line of duty how many what, what's the what's the sort of cast and crew how, how, what sort of size are you operating there
1: well the cast is obviously everybody you see on screen and in, in terms of crew um on on big days big stunt days we we get up towards about 100 people you know, when we've got specialists in like our stunt teams, our extra camera teams, our action vehicle teams, and so forth. But if we're if we're shooting straightforward interiors, then we're half that size.
0: Yeah. What about the famous interrogation scenes? How many? was the setup there?
1: Well, what expands the crew for those is that we we have more cameras, so we we tend to have a minimum of three cameras, um, whereas for the most part we we either have one or two cameras. Um, and actually, we had four cameras, as I recall, because we, we had a remote camera working as well, again, just to help with with COVID safety. And we also transplanted to a studio because of, of concerns about virus transmission, because we normally shoot on location. And we shoot those scenes in a, in a working building, which is an air conditioned building. And the access to the the interview space is is quite tight. So we were just concerned about ventilation and, and social distancing. So we rebuilt the interview room in a studio where we could ventilate it and have much greater social distancing. And then we VFX the backgrounds in.
0: DCI Huntley, in my view, there is a clear conflict of interest regarding your position and the possible involvement of your husband in these offences. Also, now, it is extremely difficult to exclude you as a suspect in tampering with evidence that might implicate your husband in said murder. Therefore, I will be recommending to the executive officer in the strongest possible terms that you be suspended from duty effective immediately. Now, you are not under arrest. However, our inquiries are ongoing and you may subsequently be arrested in connection with these offences. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? I do. And have you anything further to add? I do. Are you, as a producer, uh, very uh, mm-hmm. aware of the the budget lines and uh, and, and that part of it? And, and do you write? Yeah. To, and I, as a writer, absolutely. do you write to them?
1: I don't write to them. Um, because I, I think that there's a solution to everything. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't self-censor because I would think something's too expensive to achieve. I, I, would, I would write what I think we're aiming for and then we would have a discussion. So people who have specialist knowledge who are qualified to determine what the mm-hmm. best VFX solution or SFX solution might be to how um, much lighting we need, all those things en- end up being factored in. So, as, as a producer, you listen to people who are qualified to give their specialist view. But in the end, it's an editorial decision. If you, if you decide that you're going to spend more money to achieve what you want to see on screen, then you have to save money elsewhere. So, again, those are, those are decisions that every producer has to make, but I'd, I'd like to think that we're, we're creatively led. We try and protect things that are important for the drama, and uh, if we can make savings elsewhere, it's where we think it won't be visible on screen.
0: Everyone always talks about well, certainly the set, uh, the, the the cast, like Vicky McClure, etc. Uh, they'll sort of say, "Well, we don't know what's going to happen in the end. We don't know." Uh, your producer, as well, and and writer, you're 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 one of the only people that does know what's going to happen, Jed. Presumably. Do you manage to keep that secret from the whole team? There must be some people. No, things no to I, I, tell.
1: Pe- people say some things are, are kept secret, but honestly, they're not. It's it, normally because it's an easy way to deflect questions when <laughs> people are being asked about storylines. The, the fact is we talk all the time and we make absolutely no effort. To keep things secret. Oh, good. Um, I just
0: wonder how a producer manages to do it.
1: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Everything, everything's really open, and, and everybody gets scripts. And 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 if if the scripts aren't ready, I mean, I mean, I, I I always do my best to make sure they are ready on time. But if we're looking ahead, and there are certain things that that might need a bit of forward planning before a shooting script arrives, like a a very specific location that we know we don't have immediately at hand, or uh, a, a specific piece of casting where we might have to work quite hard to get the right person yeah. then i'll always flag those things up in advance so that the the right people on the team can get cracking and get get ahead
0: have you been uh, as a producer have you had to do a, a certain lure of a certain cast member where they were like oh i need to speak to jed before i commit to this it was in the balance and then then you came in and went, I'm gonna give you such a great part, you're gonna to have to do this.
1: <laughs> well, generally th- these things are, are quite open that it goes through a casting director and the, 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 the actor is sent a script, but often they'll just want to have a conversation with the writer or the director anyway. I think that's an industry norm. So often I'll just do that conversation, and then a director may have a conversation, or a producer may have a conversation as well. Obviously, if it's if it's an actor that I know, and I can I can just ask them informally if they'd be interested, and they'll either say yes or no, and then later on it goes through official channels. Yeah,
0: I mean, I thought, for example, when you had uh, Tandy Newton, Tandy Newton uh on board that was tremendous casting she i thought she was fantastic in it i thought it gave her a whole new sort of you know audience for for a certain type of character that she hadn't mm. played for ages i wonder where that you know who, whose idea that was that was was that creatively in your head when you were writing how did no, you know actually her? that
1: that came from our casting director oh, kate yeah. Rhodes james we, we had a short list as we always do there's a there's a short list generated once the script arrives where people get to read it and, and and figure out who might be right for that particular guest lead role. And Tandyway was on the, the, the short list and everybody was very excited by the idea. So um, Kate spoke to the agent and, you know, Kate's a hugely successful, hugely uh, respected, one might say eminent casting director. So, um, you know, that's credit to Kate.
0: What what was the best piece of advice that someone gave you when you were starting out as a producer?
1: I, I tend to look at my other experience as a way to guide me. When I was in the Air Force, someone yeah. said takeoffs are optional, landings are mandatory. And I think that's the kind of thing that I, I tend to think about. I tend to think in terms of workflow and the consequences of decisions. You know, when I first started working in television, that kind of lovey talk was something I'd never heard before. And now obviously I'm completely familiar with it. You're
0: completely fluent in lovey now,
1: Jed. I'm completely fluent in lovey now, so that's fine. Uh, But obviously it was very strange when I first encountered it, having come from an NHS and Air Force background. But a a lot of the good leadership I saw was was in the NHS and was in in the, the, the Royal Air Force. And so those are still the things that that guide me about how you how you create shared objectives, mm-hmm. how, how you how you deal with with people who need reminding of shared objectives and so on.
0: So that's that's something that you do almost on a daily basis. What are we doing here? What we, what the objective for the day is, and everyone's on the same page. Yeah,
1: I mean, gen- generally, I don't have to, but because you know. I, I'm working with great people and they're just getting on with it. But occasionally things arise on set, where there's a question mark over what what the meaning of the scene is, or it's even down to, you know, a line of dialogue or a specific action. And then it's just a conversation. One of, one of the things I was surprised and, and at times frustrated about early in my career is how a lot of those conversations used to exclude the writer uh when the writer might be the best person to inject a bit of information into that discussion that would would unlock the problem so having me around as the writer is is often how i'll deal deal with that i'll just say well this was my intention and then people can say oh okay well if i said the line like this then i think the intention would be clearer and and then we just move on so generally it's like that i mean occasionally i mean Really, occasionally, you, you get to a point of divergence where there's a creative, uh, a, a, a kind of a creative fork in the road, yeah. where <laughs> you either go one way or another, and and the the group have different opinions. And again, we do, the, the the best solution is that we talk it all through so that we we reach a shared objective, so everybody is working towards the same goal.
0: That seems to be a key thing that I'm learning for uh, my sort of. Uh, first footsteps as producer like why are we doing this it, 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 it shouldn't do but it seems to produce many different answers people have different objectives in their head for yeah. what, they're, what they're doing
1: yeah and I think that you, you the first thing is to have good, good clear lines of communication so that things aren't happening on set that the, the rest of the team don't know about so then you come on set and they're halfway through a scene and it's like some crazy decisions have been made and that there's there's been a bit of like autocracy or just weird unilateral creative decisions and normally what happens then is is someone is deliberately doing that because they they don't want to be challenged and so um, that's not really the way it should work Um, if you've got a really good idea then you should be prepared to explain it, and in the right environment, the best idea wins. You know, on, in, in production, I'm always happy to, to to listen to other ideas, and and ultimately, I'm happy to take credit for someone else's brilliant idea. So we're all we're all doing the same thing, and and it shouldn't be about what the hierarchy is. It, there should be as flat a hierarchy as possible, so that people feel empowered to suggest things, and I think people end up feeling rewarded and motivated when they're listened to. So, again, I think that that's really important. But if you have people who start behaving in an autocratic way, then that fights against that, that kind of collegial uh, environment. And and it just creates division. Then, then people end up taking divergent positions. So I, I try to, to keep communication open, and I try to Create create a, a meritocratic environment where it doesn't matter who's saying it; it's it's what the idea is that that is listened to.
0: What uh, often people ask what a producer does all day, and uh, I, I, I might ask you the same, Jed. What, what, what after this? What, what you know? What does what, what are you doing at the moment? What what does this week it, it hold for you as a producer?
1: Well, I think it's a good question because the the role of producer is is one of those in in TV which isn't the same for every producer. I think we all know what writers do and we all know what directors do and camera operators do and so forth. But a producer can be many different things. A person can be credited as a producer or call themselves a producer um, who has no involvement in the creative side or, we can, or it can be someone who's wholly involved in the creative side and has no involvement in, in the, the logistical side. Of the, the so called nuts and bolts side of uh, program making. So, from my viewpoint, I would say I'm 90% creative and, and 10% logistical. Uh, but as a showrunner, a huge part of my, my job is to be around, is to be present so that people don't have to seek me out to. to to, to ask questions to involve me in conversations you need to keep the threshold of of interacting with the showrunner quite low because if you make the threshold very high then people become more and more reluctant to 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 seek a meeting and then you don't find out what's going on at ground level until it's too late or until people have, have formed the view that maybe your your Unapproachable, or you're you're not that invested in it. So just being around on set, informally chatting to people between takes, having a coffee with someone, getting you know chatting about the weekend and things like that. All those kinds of things create an environment where then someone will say, "Oh, by the way, I I meant to say, you know, the scene we're shooting um, on Wednesday. I just had this thought about you know the action vehicles or whatever it is." and and then you end up having a really productive mm-hmm. conversation about making the show um so i think that's important and and the other thing is is as i was saying before being being open to ideas asking people what they think as, asking how how they think it's going how whether they're happy in their work what they want to change things like that
0: i mean obviously the the, the world of high end tv partly due to, you know, your injection of pace and, and brilliance is, is changing all the time, uh, taking, you know, t- taking people from uh, what would be traditionally movies or the, the cinema world. Are you seeing that coming into the, the crews that you hire and the, and, uh, and the skills that you the skill sets that you've got on, on your sets?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't claim to take any credit for that. I mean, it was something that kind of predated my most recent work. I think it's the technology. You know, the camera technology and VFX technology is, is, uh, have both improved massively and become a- affordable on, on a TV budget. I mean, if you look at cinema films from the 60s and the 70s, you, the, 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 technically, m- many of the great ones look as good as anything. That, that could be shot today with the exception of visual effects. Whereas you look at old telly and it looks rubbish, particularly old British telly, the quality of the stock, the the, the lighting, all of those things give a very dated look. And, and also, you know, the limitations of coverage, it seemed like everything was shot like it was a play. So you had some of the action shows that that, that tried to do really good stunts and many of them did some really, really great work. But there was a hell of a lot of drama that that if you looked at now, would, would look extremely dated. So I, I think what's happened is that there's been a real catch up in recent years. Yeah. So the amount of coverage you get, the which is, is a huge change. You know, because you're not shooting on film, there's, there's no particular cost to shooting more shots digitally it's you know if you if you choose to put them in the the program then obviously there are post-production costs but it's not like you're you're using reels and reels of 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 expensive film Mm -hmm. and visual effects have now become something that there's such a low threshold for using you know just basic tidying up of things yeah all the way
0: I love that I do thinking of the Sweeney and driving into cardboard boxes. You know, we we've, we've yeah, thank, for, <laughs> thank you that you've moved on with your with your action vehicles for the old Ford yeah, running and, through a box.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, th- those things now you can you can introduce a visual effects element to your planning. You know, you can you, you can paint out the crew so you can have cameras near the vehicles uh, as well as shooting off a drone. And then once you've chosen your shots, you, you paint out the, the cameras that are visible from the drone, or you, you paint out the drone that's visible from the the, the the ground level camera and so on. So that allows you to, to get much more coverage um, without having to keep redoing the stunt. And obviously stunts are expensive. So if you if you go back to a pre-TV VFX age, they would probably only do the stunt once and they might shoot it on two cameras and the, the cameras might not be optimally placed. And if the stunt didn't quite work, they'd probably have to live with it. Whereas we would, you know, we, we would either go again or we, we would try and fix it in post. Yeah. As I'm,
0: you know, making my way as a producer uh, with, uh, for some film projects, people are some, some people say, oh, but well, why isn't that TV? That should be TV. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, I mean, it could be. It couldn't. No, there seems to be this sort of, you know, not ambivalence, but almost like it could be one or the other. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if, if you get that in in TV now, you're making such, you know, thrilling and uh, sort of, you know, TV that everyone is watching. That are people saying to you, well, you know, that could be a movie?
1: Well, I think it depends on the the story. I mean, the the the, the best type of TV and and nearly all TV that's made now is series TV. The, the, the TV single is something that has kind of dwindled away. You know, it used to be that you would have so-called TV movies or or plays for today, TV plays. Those are, those are um, uh, much less available as, as an option for program makers. So I think if you're looking at a single story, then that pushes you towards a feature film, whereas if you're doing a, a, a continuing story, then that pushes you towards TV.
0: And are you looking at a single story, Jed? You're going to see a Jed Mercurio
1: movie? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really have any involvement in, in the movie industry. I'm I'm much more plugged into TV. And, and as we were saying before, I think the kinds of things you can achieve on TV now, just in terms of production values, make TV uh incredibly attractive and i think we are seeing more and more people who are who are kind of movie talents migrating to tv because the opportunities are there to to tell the sort of medium budget stories i think that you know there are there are a lot of kind of multiplex type movies that that have a particular tone and style and then the that sort of middle budget more kind of sophisticated Complex type movie is, is is less is less easy to to fund now.
0: Yeah. What I mean, what's the budget for a, a, a series of Line of Duty? I
1: don't think the BBC allows me to say. No,
0: I'm not sure. I don't know if I, did, I didn't. mean to ask if you're not allowed to say it, but I thought maybe it might be common knowledge what the uh,
1: look, people don't have. I think it much is common knowledge. I mean, it's, it's it's actually kind of in the, in the middle range for. A TV drama. I mean, that. I mean, the streamers are providing much higher budgets than the terrestrials. So, because it's a terrestrial show, it's it's nowhere near the kinds of budgets that that you would get for um, a a, um, a streamer drama, for example.
0: Mm. Does that make you think? Right, like, <laughs> where am we going to get these these budgets from? Would you work to didn't you just work to what you've got, or do you think you've got a certain groove on that you know? You know if i write to this then you know we can get it all done in a certain it way it
1: always ends up being a negotiation you know you, you if you've got a project and you 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 look at it realistically and how much it would cost to make if it's beyond the reach of a terrestrial then it won't get made so if you offer it to a streamer they they may want to make it they may may say no so a lot of the decisions that are made about commissioning relate to money just as much as they do to the creative side. You know, Tony Garnet, who um, was my first exec on, on way back on Cardiac Arrest, he was very clear that the reason the Cardiac Arrest got made was because it was so cheap that the BBC were prepared to take a chance on an untried writer, an unknown cast. And, and quite um, uh, a, a kind of dark and revisionist vision of the um the medical drama um so if if your project is cheap then people will take risks and you you, you may get it made if it's expensive then people take longer and think harder about whether they want to commission it or Well,
0: you did well then. It was, you know, probably by, I don't know if it was just by luck, it happened to be your first thing that you knew, you know, that perhaps you you wrote cheaply because that was all you knew to write or... um,
1: No, I I wasn't aware of that. And and it was just the fact that when the the production was um, commissioned, then there were all kinds of ways to keep the cost down. There was no high profile cast. Um, It was all shot. As interiors, there were there were virtually no exteriors. Um, it was shot very fast. It was shot on on Digibeta. It was the first primetime drama to be shot on Digibeta, so um, the 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 cost of that were, were much lower than shooting on film, and so on. It was it it ended up being something that that came in at like you know down nearly as low as half the price of of a regular primetime drama
0: there we go we'll have two of them
1: <laughs> yeah well it meant that they could have yes. two of them so they could they, they could they could fill some other slots with, with the money left over. but that's why the, the show got made
0: what was the telly you grew up watching
1: Jed tended to watch more American stuff than British stuff um, I, I kind of liked those long running American shows like you know first thing I was really into was Star Trek and then um, you know the, the, the cop shows detective shows and then really got into hill street blues and those those kind of more sophisticated 80s american mm-hmm. shows um like hill street and St. elsewhere and things like that and then then i kind of stopped watching tv i went to university i didn't really watch much tv from that point is that because um, you were watching movies
0: or because you were making yeah a, going, to, going to the
1: movies and just you know when you're a student you tend to you know be out and and not sitting in front of the telly with your mum and dad <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> you hope so definitely <laughs> yeah but hill street blues yeah and elsewhere Gripped me as well, uh, Jeb Mercurio Fantastic talking to you. Finding out, you know, absolutely uh, life on set and and in the office as well. You know, <laughs> life for a producer is in both in both spaces. I think we're finding out. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, thrilling. Uh, more line of duty? Is that am I allowed to know? Is that is that a secret? Is there is more? There's there's been no decision. Oh, no, okay. Sorry. I just I just thought I'd like to ask. <laughs> so, that, but we have got more Jeb Mercurio coming uh, coming up with Bloodland and uh, the secret one in Glasgow, which I'm looking forward to finding more. out about
1: thank you thanks Joyce.
0: cheers jed mercurio there what an extraordinary career path and what an amazing output what did i learn from meeting the producer jed mercurio i think keeping a calm and analytical head seems key taking each stage of production as it comes and, and listening to all the talents and contributors on set to inform your decisions I know some of that might seem obvious in terms of leading a team, perhaps, but it also seems clear to me that these are exactly some of the things most easily forgotten in the heat of the moment, in the heat of production. Huge thanks, then, to Jed Mercurio. Do join me for the next episode of the Production Guild of Great Britain's Meet the Producer series, when I'll be talking to the Bromantics, Stefan DeBart and Ward Trowman, about their first moves into the world of independent British film production. But before you go, you need to know this. The Production Guild of Great Britain is the UK's leading membership organisation for those working in film and TV drama production. It represents professionals working in a range of fields including production, assistant directing, accounts, location management, VFX and post-production. It provides members with industry advice, training, networking, and seminars, and now a podcast. And its availability service provides information on members' availability for work to heads of departments seeking crew for UK and international film and TV productions. Find out more at www.productionguild.com. And incidentally, that's just one of the places you can find this Meet the Producer podcast. See you soon.